Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a look back at 2020 with critic and journalist Siddhartha Mitter. Mitter frequently writes about artists and communities of artists that fall beyond the commercial art world's interest for publications such as the New York Times and Art Forum. He was previously a critic at The Village Voice. On the second segment, artist Marina Adams. But first, Siddhartha Mitter, after the break. Join Getty President Jim Cuno as he talks with artists, writers, curators, and scholars on the Art and Ideas podcast. Learn about Black mid-century architect Paul R. Williams from the perspective of his granddaughter, Karen Hudson, and curator Laron Brooks. Hear the story of Japanese-American photographers in pre-World War II L.A. with curator Virginia Heckert. Explore the lives of Pliny the Elder and Younger, plans for rebuilding Beirut after the recent explosions, and an alternative history of surrealism found in Dora Maar's Lost Address book. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit getty.edu slash podcasts. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for modern and contemporary art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Siddhartha Mitter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. What do you think you will remember most about 2020 in art? It's been quite a year. It's hard to say just now. I think that one thing that we can say is that art continued to happen. The making of art continued to happen. The exchanging of art continued to happen. And the viewing of art continued to happen. And I think we should be grateful for all of that. And at the same time, we shouldn't really be surprised because work continues. The question is, what was the work? What will it tell us in retrospect about this hinge year, this pivot year, this world historical year? And as we tape this show right now, we are still in the year. And we are still in the trauma. I think that this has been a big year for trauma. It is a year in which Many accumulated traumas, traumas of 500 years for some, traumas of 100 years for others, traumas of neoliberalism in the last 40 years for some, 
traumas of the cognitive dissonance and end of thinking post facts, Trump era four years for some, and then traumas of the disease, the pandemic for the past year. I think that this is the year in which trauma finally caught up with everybody and everybody's traumatized, perhaps not the filthy rich, the 0.1%, but I don't really have anything to say about them that isn't obvious. I think that for just about everyone, certainly in the US, probably in the world, trauma is perhaps not the only way to look at our condition, their condition, but it is a way. And I think that we are still in it. And so I don't know if that's a leveling or if it's a moment of like, we see you, we hear you or whatever. But I do think that we are still in it. Narrowing to the US in particular, we have gotten through some things. I think the removal of Trump, even if he leaves a devastated, broken society and politic that could yield a whole new round of even worse authoritarianism and fascism at any moment. Nonetheless, it's, it's a passage, it is a relief. And I think that the arrival of the vaccine is also a relief, even though we know that both nationally and internationally, how it gets distributed and so forth is going to be a very complicated matter that's going to reinforce inequalities probably more than it levels them. Nevertheless, I do think that we can start looking towards a post-traumatic landscape, but we're not there yet. There's grounds, there's reason to hope in the sense of there's reason to stay safe for the winter and burrow down in the reasonable expectation that things will be a bit easier in a few months and that in a few months we will have a period opening, maybe a short period, but a period opening where we can kind of reset and catch our breath and, <laughs> you know, maybe make plans so that when the next catastrophe happens or when the fascism returns, we're better prepared. But a period is going to open. And I think that coming back to your question, we're also going to be able to take stock of what has happened in the culture better than, than we can now. But right now we are in deep in the forest amongst the trees still. And I can't really say what happened in art or the culture now, except that I know that I saw things, I spoke to people, I made do, I wrote a few things. Collegial interaction continued and evolved, maybe through screens and, and phone calls and writing. And so I think that, you know, we've all been doing the work to survive and we've all been doing the work to stay sane. And at the same time, we've been doing some form or another of creative work. People have been in the studio, people have been at home turning their bedroom into the studio. I was speaking to an artist who said that they displaced, you know, they basically took over their child's bedroom as a studio. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm, making my, I'm making my art in here. And, you know, we've written and people living under great constraints in terms of getting sick or having to deal with uh, loved ones or elders sick or in terms of having to manage the complexities of schools, opening, closing, you know, instructions from principals arriving the day before some major change, you know, whatever it is, that's all creative, right? It's all, it's all been adaptation practice, improvisation practice, 
innovation practice, family practice, collective practice. There's been political practice. People have been in the streets. You know, the collective art making of movements. There's been monuments that have come down and others that have been, as we know, you know recontextualized or or at least brought back to the top of the agenda in terms of a focus point of debates. All of that is the creative field, the visual field, the artistic field, and how it all will be recorded by historians and by counter historians and people's historians and art historians, we don't know yet. And I don't really have a concise encapsulation of it myself. I just know that we've been living through some stuff and it's been really hard and it's inevitably also been interesting. It always takes a long time for curators and critics and art historians to see how artists responded to a given event. So, you know, after 9-11, it took probably at least a decade for us to have begin to have an idea of how artists engaged with that moment. And I think I think that's probably all all the all the truer now because of so many disjunctions and ruptures that have happened within a, a, a quite short period of time, really in just the last nine months. One of the things I found myself thinking a lot about, like like you, is is trauma and and violence. The, the 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 sadly routine racist American violence on one hand, the violence of hundreds of thousands killed in a pandemic that America and especially its federal apparatus handled very poorly, has handled very poorly. But there was a show that the, the, that's been in circulation at American museums this year that's had me thinking about trauma and violence a lot, and that's the the Jacob Lawrence Struggle Show that was organized by, or at least debuted at the Peabody Essex in, in Salem, Mass., and then went to the Met and is going on from there. And in painting after painting, Lawrence marked the violence at the core of the early American idea and the early American creation of the Republican state with these drips of red paint, sometimes on people, sometimes on the land, drips of, of red paint that, of course, marked blood and, 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 and violence. And, how, and it struck me how much that painterly move of Lawrence's looked like the painterly move Clifford Still, the most unalike <laughs> artist Lawrence you can humanly imagine, politically, artistically, and in all other ways. You know, it was the same move still made to mark on a canvas reference on a canvas violence and the relationship between the land and violence. Um, it really, uh, you know, darn near the same time, sometimes at, at, at overlapping times. And, and so I imagine that in decades to come, we will notice ways in which unlike artists address, reference, come to grips with uh, the traumas of the last nine, nine months plus in ways that overlap and surprise us. There's a whole show at MoMA right now that's kind of about how, how in the years after World War II, the same thing happened. Uh, it was on our podcast last week, uh, Samantha Friedman's uh, Degree Zero show about how artists surprisingly, or maybe not, used some of the same moves and mined some of the same ideas to address a post-World post -world War world. Yeah, we need, we need time. Some threads of it, we do have a whole evolving archive of work that addresses the American condition of racist violence. <laughs> Obviously that goes back. We have, we have decades and decades of it. And then we have, we have a lot of work that is in relation to what we would call the 
the Black Lives Matter phase, which you can date the beginning of to 2014 or to 2012 or to 2008, wherever, wherever you want to date it and with which particular martyr you wish to, to start the count. So we have that. And Lord knows that work has grown and continued to enrich the conversation. I think that artists have been, I don't know, I, I, I haven't been deep in the political rallies and all of that, but I do sense that there's a feeling out there that like art is relevant to politics, that movement makers, activists and organizers are, are open to art, are thinking about art. I mean, I know, for example, that like the abolition people are interested in art, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is interested in art. A, a number of people speak actively to the idea that art is part of liberation from that side, from the political side, from the movement side, which is nice, which is lovely and, and a little opening for maybe interesting things coming ahead. What's not clear is how the medical and public health calamity is going to be or will have been addressed in art. I think that there's a lot of work that's been made under conditions of quarantine or isolation or withdrawal that whether it thematically addresses the pandemic or not, it is work of the pandemic because the condition of isolation has been so intense. But I can't really say off the top of my head work that I've seen that in a very obvious, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but in a very obvious way, speaks to the medical and public health crisis that really hits right now, except for photography and photojournalism, which has been, has been very rich, perhaps inevitably. So we will see. As for Lawrence and, and MoMA, I should say, I haven't been to the museums. Since New York you know, reopened, we are very fortunate, speaking to you from New York City, that there is a hell of a lot of art on view. And it has been a real balm to go look at art. And it has been, I, I do it for work, obviously, but it's also been reason to go out, get into the city, walk around, see things, think about things. But I've been going to the galleries. And my personal practice is I haven't really been ready for the museums yet. I'm going to get there soon enough. But between between everything, the occasional reports I hear of like somebody saying that, oh, they were at MoMA and it was really crowded or it felt really crowded. It's probably not crowded like it used to be, but that, you know, that it feels things feel crowded now <laughs> with far fewer people in a room. So the one museum trip that I did make a couple of weeks ago is I did go to PS1. And I saw Nicole Fleetwood's Marking Time exhibition on incarceration in America, which, of course, has been, I think, justifiably celebrated as one of the big one of the big shows of the year, one of the big books of the year as well. And it is it is it is an excellent show. People who may have seen her Aperture show a few years ago and Aperture special issue, you know, will have seen the germs of it, an early an early iteration of it. It's a terrific show. A couple of the artists really, really, really hit me hard. There's also work that one is familiar with, Chandra and Keith. Why am I forgetting the last name? Do you know who I mean? In New Orleans and their long, long-term project looking at Angola prison. 
I'm very glad I went. It's a terrific show. MoMA PS1, of course, is a more spacious and less crowded space in the first place. And they had the time ticket thing going on and they had, um, you know, all the precautions and the fever check and the sanitizer and the building itself was definitely not crowded. But I will say that too many visitors were not respecting the guidance to not exceed five or six people in a room. And it's like, come on, people, you know, like, let's let's just like distribute ourselves out in this building. And it was frustrating. I've been to a handful of art museums this year, none, none in New York, and I felt safe every time but one. I was at the High Museum in Atlanta a few weeks ago, and it felt like the old MoMA, sardine-packed, like, like, like the museum was just paying no attention to the present. It was, I, I was so frustrated by it, even though I'd driven down to Atlanta f to go see a couple of shows, I just left. One one thing, let me let me correct myself. I did go to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in uh, Richmond in late September, and I had a lovely visit there, and it was empty as hell. And the curators that I met were thrilled that somebody actually came to visit them in person as opposed to being on Zoom, and they gave me a lot of time, and we had a lovely visit, and it was a wonderful museum experience, and it was not crowded in the least. So maybe maybe there's a New York aspect to what I'm saying as well. I was in Richmond either just before or just after you were, and I think maybe just before, and had the same experience there, and also had maybe even more meaningful experience to be very excited to be in galleries that were in which curators were intentionally, consciously, and had over an extended period of time engaged America as it exists and not merely as white people's space, something that much of that museum has been very good at in recent years. And of course, the Kahinda Wiley outside and the way it was charging toward the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which when I was there was still police taped off after the Richmond Rebellion, I think really spoke to speaks to what you were talking about earlier in terms of how artists have been engaging politics for me, I think, more in the last few years than at any time since maybe the AIDS crisis. I think one thing that remains to be seen about artists and their address of contemporary presence is whether white artists will engage with America's societal reckoning or not. I mean, I don't, I don't live in New York or LA anymore, so I'm not around artists as much as I used to be. But to me, that's still kind of a missing piece. We expect, I say, kind of speaking in air quotes, non-white artists and non-male artists to address relevant and dominant isms, feminism, racism. But we don't, we still don't expect white artists to address whiteness. Honestly, Tyler, that, that's a question that I'm interested in, but I'm not really that interested in that question in a New York or LA context. I think that I think that in an art capital, certainly in a New York, you're going to have an art world, an art scene. You're going to have people who at any time in history are just artists making art. I don't mean art for art's sake or anything, you know, kind of trivial like that, but, but whose reference points are other artists and art making and major institutions and the market or whatever it might be, and who are 
you know, doing their thing. They're painting, they're sculpting, they're doing whatever, but they are in metropolitan, cosmopolitan field, and that carries with it its own opportunities, constraints, and it's it's its own landscape. And I think, to me, again, thinking about the about the United States, I'm very interested in the question you are asking in how it is unfolding or going to unfold or perhaps has been unfolding and we just haven't really been paying attention in the Rust Belt, in Appalachia, in the South, in the non-coastal West, you know, wherever it might be. You know, I don't know. There are hypotheses, but I, I am very much looking forward in the aftertime, in the, <laughs> in the, I, I'm very, I am personally very interested in going into the post-traumatic landscape and seeing what is going on. And there's, 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 you know, I think it's, it's fair to say that no matter how much things go back to quote unquote normal, normal won't be the normal that we had before. And the economic impact of this thing is going to be immense. And the organizational and institutional impact is going to be immense. And there will be you know, I don't want to say sort of a, a turn to the local or whatever, but but certainly local scenes and local institutional and community scenes and local solidarities and local engagements are going to be significant. And so I'm very interested in what, you know, the the white artist in that world is going to be doing more than I'm interested in what, you know, this or that a-list artist sitting in their studio in Brooklyn or, you know, Los Angeles is going to be doing. Although, obviously, if something interesting happens, so much the better. And that'll be wonderful. We're just coming off of Guggenheim Foundation recommendation letter writing season. <laughs> and I wrote some recommendations for artists who are not L.A., New York coastal types who are who, who in in their proposals i i saw were working through these issues i don't think it would be appropriate to, to raise them here but it was a window into kind of maybe an early to mid process address of what you're describing so i think in a way i probably can't be specific about i i think that's happening and i think i think it's going to make you know art art unfold slowly not not only in terms of when and how it is made but just because an artist made something in november of 2020 doesn't mean we'll see it before 2023 or that or that the artist will be ready for us or think that or think that we will be ready to see it until 23 or 24 and so i think there is a you know i think one of the values that's not quite the right word one of the great and useful things about art is that it gets to take its time to address ideas and doesn't have to be journalism doesn't have to be the next day's front page oh one more one more thing on on institutions i i i have i've been in a bunch that have been pretty appropriately crowded which has been pretty exciting i mean you know the high that day was overcrowded but i i you know on a thursday afternoon i think it was i was at the north carolina museum of art uh, which has a fine american collection a crest collection of european art terrific dutch painting all kinds of good stuff and was struck by just how many people were there especially outdoor and outdoors in the sculpture garden and sculpture park on on a on a on a you know just regular sunny thursday afternoon i was at crystal bridges i think a couple of weeks after it reopened and it was safely but plenty rich with people 
I, I think institutions, I think one of the inspiring, if, if, if I can use that slightly hokey word, things about uh, the response to the pandemic for me has been how how important it has been for so many institutions to to reopen to us. Institutions like Crystal Bridges or the Gilcrease in Tulsa, which are getting, you know, almost 0% of their revenue from admissions fees or from their stores. You know, so, so this isn't a Guggenheim situation where they're just desperately trying to reopen because they're so reliant on, you know, because a bunch of poor leadership has left them reliant on admissions. You know, these are institutions that aren't reliant on, on admissions in, you know, for maybe one or 2% of their, their total revenue. And yet they still are pulling out all the stops to, to let us back in which is an example of communities reforming and being focused on perpetuating, which has been, again, the first word that comes to mind is inspiring, however hokey that, <laughs> that word it's, is. It's very important, and, and, and museums do have certainly an opportunity, and maybe some would say an obligation, to be of public and community service in new ways in the coming phase, and also in the old way of simply being there and having their doors open and creating the space of encounter and the space of beauty and the space of contemplation. I'll get there, you know, and certainly if I were to take a trip to any smaller or mid-sized city now, I would want to go to the museum. I am also obviously spoiled by the fact that I've got the galleries in New York and the gallery program, you know, this fall, winter, the gallery program in New York has been um, pretty fucking good, man. There's been a lot of good art and a lot to see. Yeah, New York's been able to do a lot more as a, as a, as a, as a city um, and really, I guess, as a state than, say, Los Angeles and California have been able, been able to do. I'm curious about what you think of some of the other impacts of, of I guess, especially the pandemic over the course of the last year. One of the things I thought I saw happening early this year was a new kind of relationship between Africa and the American art world. More links between especially West Africa and, and the American art world. Some m Much of that kind of driven by artists such as Gehinda Wiley's residency program. I wonder if you think that was happening and if you think and, and if you do, if you think the pandemic is going to impact or change or slow that increasing closeness. Well, I've been fortunate to interact with African contemporary art worlds, some of them, scenes, some of them, for a number of years now. And there certainly has been, over the last 10 or 15 years, an intensification and deepening of mutual contact, creative exchange, collaboration, influence between the art scenes of the continent and the art scenes of the, you know, post-industrial West, London, Paris, New York, etc., as well as more South-South opportunities you know, people in, people in the global South have always, many people in the global South, there's always been a clear politics in art scenes of the global South that there are, there's always at least a group, a faction who are interested in global South link making. And so there's going to be people in Lagos who are in relation with Sao Paulo, and there's going to be people in Johannesburg who are in relation with 
Delhi or Kochi, et cetera, et cetera. So to get back to the U.S. aspect in your question, I don't know. I think the biggest driver of lasting exchange is actually the direct diaspora. I think that it's much easier now to live in two places at once, or it has been until the travel got stopped, and we'll get to that in a second. But you certainly have had the phenomenon of an artist from the continent who comes and lives in the U.S. and then ends up having a home in both places. You have the phenomenon of an artist from the continent who, whether they're based here or there, is involved in either building a studio or a residency or giving or creating jobs, contributing to art education or whatever it might be in their in their home country. Those are all phenomena that come from, you know, deepening, thickening diasporas and great, much, much, much greater ease of communication. And even if travel is temporarily impeded, obviously the internet, et cetera, makes it much easier to be virtually in, in, in two places at once in a, in a, in a significant way. So, to me, you know, Kahinde Wiley setting up his BlackRock in Dakar is great, you know, and it's a great initiative and good for him if it makes him happy and feel contributive and significance in doing so, then that's 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 wonderful. But, you know, the Dakar ecosystem has got a lot going on already and is in relation with the world, inclusive of the United States and everywhere else. So I'm having trouble isolating something significant or specific about artistic ties between the continent and the U.S. in particular that is either changing now or is, it's just kind of part of the landscape. I would unexceptionalize the United States in this, in this respect. And I think that, and ultimately, from the point of view of the continent, this wasn't the, the focus of your question. The focus of your question was really from an American point of view and, and, and whether well, let me, let, me, let, me take two, let me take both pieces of it. From the point of view of the continent, you know, the most important thing is local institution building, local market making, uh, the cultivation of and development of local collector classes that are, you know, buying and sponsoring a lot of work and, that, and, and then are buying and sponsoring interesting work, uh, adventurous work, non-conservative work. That's really the most important thing. And with it, the, the, the creation of institutions whether by national governments, local governments, rich, local rich people, artist-driven collectives and communities, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that dynamic has been happening. I don't want to really generalize to the whole continent, obviously, but in, 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 in crucial places and in crucial ways, that dynamic has been happening. It has been spreading. And if anything, I think it's going, some of the, the conditions of this year's shock might intensify that dynamic. So that's, that's one part of it. From the the other side of it, the U.S., I mean, how we look at African art, you know, what is what are the programs of the major museums? You know, the Met had the great, really nice Sahel exhibition early this year before the shutdown. You know, there, 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 there's obviously opportunity for doing better work on Africa. There's the question of restitution that is hovering around in, in much more interesting ways than and much more active ways than it has in, in, in a long time, even if we can't really predict what's going, to, what's going to come of it. But on the other hand, let's be real concrete here. The Biden people need to get to work on visa policy and on 
all it, and all the different things that the Trump people have shut down in terms of actually allowing people to come and be in exchange here and show work, travel around, because, you know, visa issues are a major, major obstacle in, in cultural exchange. And the Trump people really, really went at it. Yeah, students too, of course. Yeah, students, students too. People, people, are, people are going elsewhere. There's a big market for high-quality higher education all over the world, and people don't have to come to the United States. Let's close by looking at, at 2021. Is there anything that you're really looking forward to about, about your 2021? Well, I hope to continue doing this work. This work has been a balm. It's I'm privileged to have continued to have work as a freelancer under the current circumstances. It keeps me in a very precarious state, but not off the cliff. You know, one learns to live with precarity. One just can't adjust to falling off the cliff, right? And so I appreciate what I have. I wish it were better paid. And I wish that there were more of it for many more of us, including myself. It has been a real balm to look at art, think about art, be in conversation with artists, particularly with art workers who are at the hinge of art making and community making this past year, as it was already before that, all the more so now, whether that is, you know, any of the various artists that I've profiled in the New York Times or elsewhere, or whether it is the people I met at the foot of the Lee Monument <laughs> in Richmond, whom we may not think of as artists in a, in a, in a formal sense, but who are absolutely agents of activity and change in visual culture. So all of that has been a bomb. It has kept my mind going. It has given me challenges. It has given me things to research and think about and prepare. And so that has been really helpful for sanity. So my first hope is that that work can continue and that it can continue for all of us as our own kind of <laughs> community or, or, or family, and that we can keep on opening those doors and those windows to as many people as possible, to casual readers, to casual listeners, to anybody, because it's just part of psychic survival. Now, more specifically, you know, I was talking to my New York Times editor a couple of days ago, and she was asking me if I've begun to kind of look at like shows on the horizon for next year and like that kind of thing. And you know, and, I, and obviously, I mean, it's important. She's got, she's got, she's got papers to fill, and like, what happens in arts and leisure in March is 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 now starting to be a concern. And so, I I, I want to answer, and I said, listen, I'm I'm just not there yet. And so, that's my same answer to you. But I am really hoping that I can get out there in America soon. I want to get on the road. I want to go places. I want to re-encounter this beautiful complicated, problematic, fucked up and inspiring country and society that we that we that we're all in. And kind of I don't know if I want to kind of like be on the road and go places in some like weird kind of settler colonial way of like marking my territory <laughs> or 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 reclaiming it from you know from various forces. I'll have to scrutinize I need I need to scrutinize that in, in in myself, but I do think that I want to be in it. I think it's 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 going to be. It feels psychically necessary to be in it. 
And so the question is, how do, you know, I want to do that safely, obviously. I'm in my 50s now. You know, I, 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 want, to, I want to live a, a little bit longer. But I want to be there and I want to be on the ground. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a reporter and a critic. I can, I can be either. I can be both. I like to do work that is kind of hybridized. But I'm a reporter. I like to be on the ground. I'm a journalist. I got to talk to people. I got to see things. I got to be places. I got to feel the atmosphere. I'm tired of Zooms. I'm not interested in this shit. I want to be out there. And so I can be patient. I think that the news from the, about the vaccine is good. I think that the political news is at least giving us a little bit of room now. And so it's just a matter of getting through this damn winter with some patience and then hopefully come spring, getting back out there and looking at, as I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, this post-traumatic landscape and thinking about what art making and community making and visual and social culture making are going to be and what's going to happen in that always, always, always fertile zone where all of those are happening at once. I'm thinking of a, about a lot of the same things in, in kind of different terms, right? I mean, I can't wait to research again, to learn from objects again. Sometimes, you know, that learning is in front of a painting or a sculpture, and sometimes that research and learning is, you know, with, with 19th century manuscript material, and sometimes that research and learning is, you know, at the foot of the Lee Monument. And so being challenged on a daily basis by what I don't know and having to build new knowledge from learning what I didn't know is something that has only been able to happen in a kind of limited way in the last nine months, certainly a more limited way than usual in the last nine months. And in the last kind of three or four weeks, I guess, especially, I've been pretty frustrated by the limitations of learning and research in a mid to late COVID era. When I when I think of 2021, I think of everything from uh, getting back into research libraries to being in galleries with an Emma Amos survey at the Georgia Museum of Art, and those being equivalent, roughly equivalent experiences, physical, mental, all 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 of the things at once that that Zoom denies us. <laughs> yeah, and I and I am interested in you know what will be my first, you know, what will be my first post post pandemic biennial, for example, you know, I'm interested in what's going to happen to those. It might be prospect in New Orleans in the, in the fall, or it might be something international. I am interested in what's going to happen to the forms and, and the institutions and how everything morphs and what doesn't morph and what the problems are going to be and what the politics is that needs to happen around that. You know, it's also going to be interesting that some biennials um, like the Hammers, which as we tape this still doesn't know when it's going to be open, the COVID rates in Los Angeles County are 70% higher than the already very high national average on the day we're talking. And that's work that, that was made and finished months ago and that has been sitting in white cubes waiting for our presence. It's going to be a little bit of a time capsule when it finally opens, we hope, in January or February. And then there are shows like Prospect where, you know, they were delayed a year. The Whitney Biennial was also delayed a year and where there will be some greater, probably more for, for the YBI than for Prospect, some greater opportunity for artists to have responded to the pandemic in work that will be on view in, in those venues. Yeah, it's going to be show, shows of new work are going to be different and the horizons over which that work was made is going to have to be maybe more primary than it would otherwise be. In our, in our minds as we look at it. You know, we, we won't be able to take for granted when 
you know, what a 2020 date on an artwork will be. Maybe some of us will probably be thinking, oh, I wonder if this was made in February or if it was made in November. That's right. Was it in the, was it in the before time or the, or the during time or the after time? It's kind of like art made in 1941 or 1938, you know. <laughs> I mean, Tyler, it's crazy to think that it really hasn't been that long. Like, like we, are, we are still within a calendar year where we were, where, where most of us had two months, two and a half months of, you know, quote unquote normal or, or you know, the, that was still in the rhythm of, of what we were doing before. I had international travel in 2020. You know, it was just before. You know? Siddhartha Mitter, thanks very much. Tyler, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout Greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Welcome back. Next up, artist Marina Adams joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of Focus Marina Adams at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Curated by Allison Hurst, the exhibition is on view through January 10th, 2021. Adams is an abstract painter whose works celebrate the joining of color to form and often to scale. In just the last few years, she's had commercial gallery solo exhibitions in New York, Sweden, and Switzerland. Marina Adams, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Before we can talk about fun things like color or line or palette or art history, I think we have to start with size, because enormity or intimacy, depending on the work, of course, is at least for me the first thing I encounter or feel in the presence of your work. Is scale as primary for you as it is for, I think, how it inevitably is for a viewer approaching your objects? Oh, yeah. I mean, scale, you know, scale is key. I always feel that if there's not a good sense of scale, then then you can't even go on. It's it's such a basic part of of the structure and the drawing, I guess. Particularly, you know, the structure that you know it's like a skeleton. You've got to have you've got to have a great sense of scale, I think. And so, definitely in the drawing, I mean, that's that's the key, especially especially because I try to keep the work very simple. So what is different for you about approaching an eight and a half foot high canvas or an 18 inch work on paper? What is the fundamental difference? Well, you know, you've, you've talked about size, but you've also talked about surface and medium. So a painting is different than paper for me. Although the gouaches are paintings on paper, I also do and recently did a lot of crayon drawings. But I think that one thing about working smaller is it allows me to work sometimes more quickly because you can cover the surface more quickly. You're also involved with a hand as opposed to an arm or a body and gesture. And especially on paper because the medium is more, you know, even inexpensive and more accessible that it allows me to do 
it allows me to be very playful and really experimentative and really, you know, sort of just throw caution to the wind and really, you know, put things out there and take a look at them, you know, see what comes back. When I get to the large canvases, you know, I sort of enter with at least some sense about where I'm going. And that's why I start uh, with the drawing. I start with charcoal and line. And just to give myself, again, a sense of the space and the, and the, and the drawing and the, and the scale of it. And then that frees me to get to the paint, which allow, the paint for me is really about the color and the touch. I've said this before, but you know, I, that was a big moment for me of change in terms of my process. When I was younger, I think, you know, coming out of New York and the whole history of the improvisational sort of movement or artists, you know, you can say abstract expressionist, but, you know, the whole in the moment feeling was where I developed. And then really looking at Alex Katz gave me the, I guess, insight to slow it down in a way. And I, I loved how direct he was with the paint and with the touch. And I, you know, from looking at the small studies that he did, you know, I realized sort of how he, he got that. I don't work quite that way. And obviously, I'm not a figurative artist, but I did realize that to work things, work certain things out ahead of time in terms of drawing and scale, it freed me. And that's ultimately what you want. And that's sort of how I can get to what I get. You mentioned charcoal studies. I had, I, I've, I've read you talk about that before, but I've never read how big those charcoal studies are, how, you know, what size you start with. That's misinformation. I actually don't do charcoal studies. I actually don't do studies. I, I do small, as I said, mostly small gouaches. I, I draw a lot. And it's more about as I say, just being able to throw a lot of things out there, make a lot of different works, works that are good, bad, beautiful, ugly, you know, just the whole, the whole gamut, the whole range. I do use charcoal to draw directly onto the canvas on the linen before I be, that's how I begin the canvases. So it's not a study. It's really just, that's how I begin the paintings. I work first in charcoal and just very lightly just with a line just to give myself just to try to define the space and it's not that they don't change I mean sometimes things change drastically but it gives me a beginning which is different than as I say the sort of improvisational all at once uh, working everything up at the same time the thing that that, that surprised me about reading about your use of charcoal and maybe it shouldn't is that your works are so color and line intensive or dominated, starting from the absence of color to becoming the totality of color seems like an enormous transformation. I, I don't know if you think of it that way or if that's just the product of having done this for many years and learned a language to work through. But was that, is that, something you have to think through? As I said, I really just use the line to to draw, to give myself, as I said, a structure, a scale, a space to sort of break the canvas up before I enter with color, with the paint. But it does play for me a, 
I hate to say a minor role because there's something about the edges that is and the shapes that is clearly just as important and just as potent as the color that in a sense fills the space. I think though the for me anyway the experience of the work is always that the color comes first. And maybe that's something that's been you know now at this more mature stage I think I've gotten there. I don't think I could get there early on. I think to get to color is actually really difficult. So I, I think to get to the point where the color is the first thing that you experience and that you embrace. And then when you relax with them, then you sort of get involved with the dance in a sense of the lines or the edges or the movement, you know, of the shapes. But it is, it's all happening simultaneously. So in some of your paintings, there's kind of a boundary line or a border between bigger areas of color. And so in Chops from 2018, there is kind of an X of blue that operates as a mediator between other big areas of color or in Standing Rock, kind of brownish lines that function that same way. And in other paintings like Purple Heart from 2018 or Days and Nights also in the, in the Fort Worth show, there are these enormous areas of color that collide without mediation. Is that a difference for you? Or do you not think of there ever as being borders between areas in the painting? I guess, first of all, it's all about what the painting needs and often how it needs to change. As I said, sometimes things change more than others. You know, I have to more radically change something or, or or use line to change something. I mean, the color of water, I really felt that the shapes and the colors needed to be broken up in a way. And so then I just really went in and did what I felt like was a line drawing on top of it, but with a very thick, I wanted a thick line because a thick line is both a shape and a line. And then a thick line that's a, a shape also has, t- has edges. <laughs> so I like the complexity that that offers. And, you know, when I'm trying to think about how when I made chops, I mean, that those blue areas, I'm trying to think how if they came again, there they, there was something missing. I, I just try to put in what's missing, I guess. I try to feel out what a, what a work needs. The work is done very much in I have to be very present with the work. And sometimes I also have to give it time. I always feel like it has to tell me what it needs. I think of it like kids that way. It's just listening and then being able to offer it what it needs. And sometimes they are finished before, uh, you know, even that I have to recognize. That's something about being a mature artist. I remember when I was young, I have images of works that I think, oh, I should have left that, but I couldn't see it. So, you know, one of the things about being older and having worked for longer is that you can see more clearly. And that's, you know, it's a great, a great thing. You recently did a really interesting Q&A with Alex Bacon in the Brooklyn Rail. We'll have a link to it in the show page on manpodcast.com. And one of the things you said in that interview, and, and I think a couple others, is that you don't like the word abstraction because you don't like the idea of a painter or you abstracting away from something that the word abstraction carries within it the idea that something is being abstracted i I say making an intransitive or transitive or the other way around so i think there are times in your work i can find the body or nature and is that 
something you wish people like me wouldn't say or find? No, not not at all. I mean, I do too. Oh, you do? All right. I feel better. But I guess the thing is, what I find to resonate more deeply is something that is less, we can say, illustrative. And so I try to put the body very consciously and you can say nature. I mean, those are the two words you brought up in the two things into the work, but in a way that feels really organic, I guess, just it's like living in our bodies. I mean, we, we, it's like being female or male. You just are, you know, uh, my work, if it's female, it's just intrinsically. So I don't, I don't make it that it's what comes out of me or it's what, you know, it's that I am and that, it has its way of informing the work. I mean, we do look at nature. We do look at things. So I just try to deal with reality, I guess. And that's why I did say that, that I don't like the idea. And I felt it was very European, in fact, that when – and I understand why it had to happen. And I think that it was incredibly important, the the break, in a sense. And I think it even had to do with what was happening in the world. I think it had to do with – how the the European world wars changed everything and how people had to their their minds, you know, and what they they understood things had to change. And the artists through even cubism or, you know, breaking, you know, the notion of taking something and abstracting it, breaking it down into in, in a way was very, very important at that time. But we've we know that. And so we're you know, we're past that in a sense. We, we've seen that, that that's, that's there for us. And so for me, I felt, I feel very free. And I, and as I say, I also felt very free to go back and go, to go back to Europe and study painting. Whereas the American artists and New York artists, I mean, the whole school here, Pollock, Krasner, you know, all of them, they had to give up. They had to get away from Europe. You know, they, I mean, Pollock broke through that. And that was very important at that time. So I think every, I think artists really feel and do and live within certain moments in time and do what is necessary. We're lucky, you know, sometimes to, like I've always felt fortunate that, that I didn't have that burden, you could say, of having to break off from something and create something new, like the abstract expressionist. And yet I have that history in me. And then I can go back and I can sort of study, go back and look at even, you know, Giotto. And, and I mean, Caravaggio has been extremely important to me and, and Titian. And I mean, so many things that I've been able to see and study. I mean, Veronese, I get to approach it in a very different way. I look at it, I guess, very abstractly in a way in terms of the touch and the color and the scale. In fact, one time we were in Venice and... It was during one of the Biennales. Venice tends, for me, tends to really come alive. I think that the rest of the city hang better shows when the, you know, when the art, when the art's up. And so we got to see these four Veronese paintings that had been on a ceiling, but they had been taken down to be restored. And then they were, we just like bumped into it, actually walked by. There was no one in there. And we walked in and got to see these four Veronese paintings right up close. And so you see, because they were meant for the ceiling, the way they were, the brush marks, and the, I mean, they were masterful and very abstract in a sense. And you just got to see the confidence and the color and the, I mean, it was amazing. So it's moments like that, that we, I get to see things, and, but I get to see them with all the history that's come, you know, between then and now. 
And, you know, and I just, you know, I take it all. I kind of eat it all up. Now, all of those artists you just mentioned are really handsy painters. They're really, you know, you see uh, whether they're, 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 they're painting it at building size scale or on canvas. You see the evidence of, of the hand and, and what they make or made. <laughs> and in your work, despite its often enormity, there is very much a handsy, and I, and I say handsy, not brushy, but I think handsy presence. Was that hard won, particularly at scale, or was it fundamental from the beginning? That's a good question. You know, I remember when I was a very young painter that I knew ultimately that it was, or I felt, I will say, that ultimately it was all about how you touched the canvas. But I couldn't get there. And I remember looking at, and this is where I studied Picasso. And I think when that, that Museum of Modern Art retrospect where they took all like seven floors or whatever, I, or however many floors, I remember, I mean, I wasn't living in New York and I came seven times just, and I really looked at that show and I looked at the early work and how he, he just, he overworked things and the surfaces were sometimes we could say terrible, especially in relation to the late work, but he had to do what he had to do. You have to work through certain things. You have to, you have to give things up when you're young um, and risk everything, I think, in order to be able to get those things when you're older. And so now I, I have it and I, I know that I can touch the canvas, whether it's a 12 by 12 inch painting or, uh, as you say, like eight and a half foot high painting. I, I can I can work it. I have a sense of the paint. I've been working long enough. But, yeah, it was hard won. But I think that, you know, you have to be smart. I think you have to use your youth well. You have to realize when you're young, you know, and for anybody young listening, you've got to risk everything when you're young because you will bounce, you know, and I think we even see it like in all the protest marches that happened during COVID over the summer. It was full of young people, you know, and I think that, you know, many people who were older who maybe wanted to join in the spirit felt that they were better off not, you know, going out because of the risk of infection. Uh, so I do. I think that when you're young, you have to be smart. You have to risk what you need to risk. You have to be kind of confident that you can recover. You can bounce. You know, if you fall, you're not going to break your yourself in the same way as older people do. And that way you develop. And that so that when you are more mature, you did all that hard work and it's there. It's in you and you know it. One of the, for me anyway, fundamental tensions in your paintings is the handsiness and the sense of you're physically acting on linen. And the way that you use these enormous areas of color in a way that reminds me of Helen Frankenthaler. Of course, with Frankenthalers, there there is no hand, and your colors are enormously brighter. Like, enormously brighter. <laughs> like, like, a lot brighter. <laughs> and a lot more rooted in... in nature and organicism. Um, I'm probably in, in all this revealing how little I like Frankenthaler. I wonder if she's ever been important to you because I, because it seems like in so many ways you've done things totally un, unlike what, what she did, but the large areas of, of color and the way they collide and dominate within a rectangle suggests a certain awareness. 
I mean, Fregenthaler, whom I respect greatly, was not actually a big influence on me. If I look back and I think about the artists of, you know, that generation or two, I would have to say that both, uh, well, let's say, you know, even the artist who's closest maybe in generation to her, who's, who is very important to me, is Joan Mitchell. I find Joan Mitchell's work to be, and especially now that we're getting to see it, now that she's no longer here, you know, incredibly, you know, the energy in the work, the power in the work. I mean, she, the will, you know, again, I spoke about tennis. I mean, it's that will. I feel that same kind of Serena Williams will in Joan Mitchell that I, I don't feel in, in Frankenthaler, as I say, as much as I respect what she did in her life and what she, you know, how she worked, you know, how she herself, you know, worked the sales. And despite, you know, again, at a time when she was one of the first female artists to really uh, become a major force in the marketplace and, you know, in the, in the art world. But uh, as I say, for, for me as an artist, it was Joan Mitchell and the other artists, you know, of those were both, I mean, I, Pollock, Krasner, and de Kooning are all very, very important as well, I feel, for all, you know, different reasons. I guess I would also say I see a little bit of de Kooning and Hans Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm less, again, appreciate Hans Hoffman. And, you know, you, you study and you look and you take from everybody. But de Kooning was also both. Oh, lots of de Kooning. Lots of de Kooning. I totally de Kooning and that. Mitchell, yeah, he, they were showing with Xavier Forcade in New York when I moved to New York and went to Columbia University as a grad student. And I would go and look at their, that, you know, basically the late work that they were doing and was very, very involved with that. And, you know, this was at a time when uh, the, the real contemporary scene was, was not. It was, you know, Schnabel and Sally and, and, you know, all the younger painters were coming in and, and that was happening. And I was going and looking at, you know, as I say, uh, those two artists and that gallery. And yeah, I, I, they, the way they touch the canvas, I mean, that definitely, you know, I, I looked at that, that I, it, touch for me is extremely important. I think that you reveal so much in your touch. If the touch communicates, you can get such a sense of humanity through that. And it seems so direct and so simple that that's, you know, that's where I go. I love that. Marina Adams, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.